In the late 1980s, a group of archaeologists from Cal Berkeley traveled to Iraq to excavate a site. They went to a large hill uh, that looked like all the other hills uh, that were in this, uh, uh, this region. Uh, but this hill was different. This hill was man-made, unlike some of the other hills. Uh, as they started to dig on it, what they found is underneath uh, the surface of soil was stone and brick that had been covered up and transformed from 25 centuries of dirt just being piled in on top of it. As they started to dig, uh, what was revealed uh, was that there some sort of battle had taken place here, and it had been preserved. They found 12 skeletons. They found a bunch of different weapons. And what they had realized was that uh, the thing that they were digging was actually like a big gate to a city. And the roof had collapsed on these people because of a fire. And so because of that, the, everything that they were excavating was actually really well preserved, kind of much like Pompeii in Italy after the volcano hit. Everything was kind of like unlooted and untouched. And so as they're like looking through this, they're realizing uh, this, this is a, a really important find. This is a really important dig. Um, as they started to kind of peel back all the dirt, what they realized is that this wasn't just any gate to any city. This was the famous Hazi Gate. It was 220 feet tall. Uh, and it was flanked by 60-foot walls that were 50 feet wide that were protecting a city that was large enough to contain 150,000 people. What this gate was was the famous gate that was outside the famous ancient, enormous city of Nineveh. Nineveh, which was the great power in the Iron bronze and iron age. Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. Nineveh that was known for uh, uh, its, its, its power, both military, its power economically. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was kind of like Rome before there was Rome. Nineveh was the greatest city in the world. Nineveh was known uh, not only for its power and its economy and its technology, but it ruled the entire region of the Fertile Crescent. So it ruled over the Babylonians and the Persians and uh, the Elamites and the Medes and the Scythians and all sorts of different groups of people. It was a power that ruled an empire uh, longer than what Rome's empire lasted, longer than our country here in the United States has lasted. We would feel like a baby country compared to how long this place lasted. Not only was it incredibly powerful, but people all around the area absolutely despised the Assyrians because of kind of how they treated everyone, because of their behavior. Uh, and in fact, uh, not only were they, they just terrible people, full of power, full of violence, controlling everyone else, um, they were just kind of self-centered. So their leaders uh, actually said, they gave this kind of self-proclaimed title, that they were kings of the empire. So imagine this, they thought they were the kings of the empire and they ruled kind of like the known world at that time. So in the midst of this, back in the 8th century, God had a message for Nineveh. And this message is found in this little book in the Old Testament that contains a very big story. And I want to start today with this story. It takes place in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is one of the minor prophets. You'll find him in the Old Testament. In verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because of the wickedness has come up before me. So the book opens with this little message to Jonah. Go to Nineveh and preach against it. 
So if you're Jonah, what is your response? You know how powerful and mighty and scary this capital of Assyria is. Your thought is probably, what? You want me to do what? Go where? Do what? Preach what message? And what we find is that this incredible and epic story takes place after Jonah's response to God's call for this mission. And for the next seven weeks, what I want to do as a church is just dive in deep to this epic story of Jonah. This story uh, of of God's heart for societies, his missional heart for for people that are far from him. Uh, This story about our heart as religious people, how we respond uh, to what God wants us to do. Some of the things that are revealed the way that mercy plays out in our world. Uh, There's so much to dive into here. And what I have found is that this is an incredible story, one of my favorite stories in Scripture. Um, But I often come to it with all sorts of, like, nostalgic images of my childhood. So when I think of Jonah, I think of Jonah and the whale. I think of, like, a flannel graph board in Sunday school, or I think of coloring pages. And those are good things as well. But what what we find is that as as we're older and we, we jump back into some of the context... Um, We never outgrow these stories, but these stories deepen and widen and textures added to it. And I've realized I've had all sorts of misconceptions as I've come to this story. And so I want to unpack just some of the culture, some of the misconceptions um, that I've had around it, just some of the context and dive deep over the next seven weeks and find out how this staunch religious person, this prophet Jonah, interacts and relates to people who are different than him, uh, different race, different religion, um, people that he actually can't stand, and what God is asking him to do from just a missional standpoint. So that's how we're going to kind of go the next seven weeks. And today I just want to, it's a lot of content, just give some basic like observations and look at some of the misconceptions on this story. So we're only going to go through three verses today, and hopefully we're setting up the whole series. But um, first thing to note, note is that Jonah was a prophet. He was a prophet. This was his identity. Um, he was a man that lived in the 8th century. We, we have account of him in the hist- history of the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, it tells us that he's alive during Jeroboam II's reign. He's a prophet in the northern kingdom. He has this word for Jeroboam. Something amazing happens uh, where God is expanding the borders of his people. And, uh, and so he's a historical figure. Um, and then you have this story of Jonah, the prophet, um, where he has this kind of like, uh, what, what the prophet does is it, it, it takes the heart of God and the message of God, and it tells it to people. So Jonah has this task and this identity as a prophet to communicate God's heart uh, to the world. Um, the second thing, we talked about Nineveh, this city where Jonah's called to go to uh, with this message from God. Nineveh is a place of great wickedness. And when sometimes we think of like the wickedness of Nineveh, in my mind, you might, or you might do this, you might think of like frat party, right? So there's debauchery, there's all sorts of partying, there's raucous drinking, and all sorts of things that, you know, you're not supposed to talk about in the church. But when you think about the, the evil of Nineveh, it's just not that this is like this corrupt party town. This is a town that is doing unbelievable evil to other people and to God's people. Uh, Nineveh uh, pops up in another one of the minor prophets in Nahum. And what we find, what Nahum says about Nineveh is, it's not just evil, but it says that Nineveh is actually doing evil towards God and his people. Here's some of the things that they were known for. Cruelty and plundering with their military. 
they were known for prostitution and sexual, sexual exploitation of the people that they conquered. They were uh, also uh, guilty of economic exploitation with everyone in the region. And um, they worked kind of this, this, uh, this propaganda of terror mongering. And so one of the ways that they would keep people in check was they made you absolutely terrified of them. And so there's all these accounts of like the Assyrian kings, what they would do to the people that rebelled against them or that they conquered. And some of these things were so graphic, like I was reading them in commentaries and I'm like, I probably can't share that like, you know, on Sunday. Uh, but just an example, one of the things they would do to like the people that they would conquer is that they would, they would basically chop off their limbs, their legs and one arm so that they could shake the hand and the arm of the person that was dying and that person couldn't do anything about it. This was like a regular practice for the Ninevites. These were not only evil people, they were people that their evil was going, they, their evil was enacted against others, against God's people. These people are unbelievably corrupt, which means if you're Jonah and you're given this mission from God to go to these people, this would have been something for you that would have been like scandalous. God, you want me to go to the Assyrians, to the Ninevites, to their capital, to, to the dude that thinks he's the, the king of the universe with everything that they're doing to their neighbors and everything that they've done to your people, God? You want me to go there with a message? That would have, that's where Jonah becomes not just this like Sunday school story. It becomes this scandalous call of God who is asking Jonah to go to a people that are absolutely broken and corrupt with a message. Uh, Tim Keller talks about this in his story, The Prodigal Prophet, where he says it was shocking. This, this scandalous call of God for Jonah is shocking, first because it was a call for a Hebrew prophet to leave Israel to go out to a Gentile city. He says, up until then, prophets had been sent only to God's people. And you'd have like other prophets with occasional pronouncements or a few oracles for the pagan countries, but they were always brief. No prophet had ever been called to go in person to one of these pagan countries. And so Jonah is not only a prophet, but his mission is unprecedented. His mission, this is something that the prophets had never done before. He's actually going, his word isn't just for God's people, it's for another people in a society that is absolutely corrupted. Jonah was a, a prophet, and Jonah's mission was unprecedented. God is calling him to do something that just is so far out of the box of what all the other uh, prophets at, to this point had been called to do. So we have Jonah, the prophet, we have Nineveh in this unprecedented mission that Jonah is going to Nineveh to preach to them this message of God. Now, as we start to kind of unpack uh, Jonah, um, the thing that always comes up is, well, what about the fish, right? Or what about the whale, Jonah and the whale? And oftentimes when people struggle with this story, they are struggling with it because there's like a science behind the story that they just have such a hard time believing. So why, how could this really happen? Like, you really think there's a, there's a whale that's large enough that could swallow a person and he could live inside that whale for three days. And so a lot of work has been done trying to kind of prove the science behind this story. And one of the first things to note is that we think of it as a whale. The Hebrew word is actually for a fish, a big fish. And this word big is this word kind of huge that's used throughout the story. So there's this big fish. There's this big wind, Nineveh's this big city, this big storm comes, um, God, God delivers Moses, or Moses, Jonah with this big fish, and what we find is that, that it's not just a whale, it's a fish. We don't know what kind of fish it is, 
Um, there's been all sorts of predictions or, or explorations into like what kind of fish this could possibly be. Uh, with all of the science that's behind it, these people have never decided to actually like try it out and go live in a fish for three nights. But um, here's kind of what my thought is on that. As followers of Jesus, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that there was a resurrection. And like our faith is based on this idea that this supernatural event happened. And if we believe in resurrection, what we believe in is that God can do things supernaturally in this world that we just can't explain. And so if this is a story that happens literally, we can believe it because God does things that are supernatural that we can't explain. So there's this kind of literal interpretation of the story with the fish. But then there's also thoughts that this is a parable, that it's, it's a Hebrew parable and it's Hebrew storytelling. And so there's this like metaphor that is here um, that, that is kind of explaining like some bigger truth of what's happening. And they, the, the people that say it's a parable could say like Jonah actually represents God's people and the fish represents something else. And so there's kind of this metaphorical language around it. And you get this as you kind of like start to unpack this story. In the Hebrew, it's written very poetically. And it's written with um, certain literary devices like parallelisms and chiasms in the Hebrew that you wouldn't necessarily see in the English. And what I mean by is that there's actually two stories in Jonah. You've got scene one and scene two. And in scene one, what you have is like, oh, these are backwards. Uh, God's, God's word comes to Jonah in chapter one, verse one. And then chapter 3, verse 1, God's word comes to Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 2, the message is to be conveyed. In chapter 3, verse 2, there's another uh, uh, retelling of the story, the message must be conveyed. In verse 3, you have Jonah's response. In chapter 3, verse 3, you have Jonah's response again. In verse 4 of chapter 1, you have a word of warning. And in verse 4 of chapter 3, you have a word of warning. And what you find is that there's this kind of like parallel of these two stories playing out in chapters 1 and 2 and chapters 3 and four of scene one and scene two. This is Hebrew storytelling, and it's poetic. Um, another thing is like when we look at the life of Jesus and we see him kind of telling these parables, these stories that are earthly stories with heavenly meanings, even his, some of his stories kind of echo the storytelling of Jonah. So when you have the story of like the prodigal son, we actually find that kind of in the story of Jonah. Jonah chapters one and two um, Jonah kind of reflects the younger son in the story of the prodigal son. And then in Jonah chapters 3 and 4, he reflects kind of the older, bitter son in the story of the prodigal son. And so what we find is that there's a, a certain kind of style and genre of storytelling. So you might ask, well, what about you? Do you think that this is like a literal translation of a story that really happened, or is this parable? And my response would be, yes. Yes. Is it a, is it a literal story or is it a parable? I would say it's a true story. And what happens is sometimes we can get so caught up in the details trying to kind of prove it that we miss what's being communicated here. We know Jonah was a real person. We know Nineveh was a real place. Maybe the Hebrew authors are using some literary devices to help tell the story. But the story is true, and it's authoritative, and it's powerful. And as we read it, we experience God with this deep wonder as we engage the text. Let's not get caught up on just some of the details of it. Because what happens is we might miss what God is doing as he speaks to us through this story. Here's one of the details I think we miss. We get so caught up on the fish, we forget the simple fact that the fish isn't punishment. When Jonah gets swallowed by this fish, it's not punishment because of him running away from God. The fish is actually Jonah's salvation. This is one of the things that we, we miss about this story. It says at the end of chapter 1, it says this, 
that God provides a huge fish. And in chapter 2, there's this beautiful psalm that Jonah writes that we'll get to in a few weeks, where Jonah's still in the fish, and he says, I cried to the Lord, and he delivered me. Which, if you're reading it, you're like, wait a second, you're still stuck in the whale, or you're still stuck in the fish. Are you going to make it out? How do you know you're not going to just digest in there? But we find Jonah saying, I cried out to the Lord, and he delivered me. The fish was salvation. God provides this way to keep him from drowning. And I think what we'll find in the story is that, that oftentimes when we stray from God, when we run away from God, and God provides for us a way for salvation, a way for life, sometimes that looks very differently than what we would expect. The, the fish was salvation for Jonah. So Jonah has this calling to go to Nineveh, this incredibly evil city, with this message from God And here is Jonah's response. This is why he kind of ends up in the situation where he's in a fish. Chapter 1, verse 3. So Jonah gets this calling. Here's his response. Jonah ran away from the Lord. That was Jonah's response. Like the kids these days call this ghosting someone. He just took off. He doesn't tell God what he's doing. He doesn't explain anything. It says Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed to Tarshish headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, paying this fee, which would have been expensive, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. This is a Hebrew prophet who's got credibility to his name, told to do something by God. And not only does he not engage God, his response is to flee, to run away, to get as far away as he can. Now, Nineveh is about 500 miles east of where Jonah lives. Tarshish is about 800 miles west. And what does he do? He pays for a fee to cross the Mediterranean Sea to go to Tarshish. Tarshish is this Phoenician mining colony, uh, scholars think, that is in Spain near the Rock of Gibraltar. This is like as far away from his calling as he could go. He literally goes to the opposite ends of the earth. And remember at this time, this is before the Roman Empire is around, all civilization is east. The west is wild. He goes to the furthest ends of the earth that he can to escape the calling God has placed on his life. And I think that's important because Jonah, this man of God, is willing to go against what God wants. And if this 8th century prophet, Hebrew prophet, can do that, I need to realize that I probably have the ability to do that as well. And my guess is you too, especially in seasons of great fear and uncertainty. Right now in the midst of this pandemic, there's certain things that God is calling from me and from you. We have the opportunity to respond in faithfulness or run. There's always a ship waiting for Tarshish in life. And maybe it's for your marriage. You have this call to be faithful. You have this call to, to fulfill the things that, that, you've, that God has, has called from you, that you've made commitments. Maybe it's something like with your, your work and your job that you know that you've been placed here for a purpose. God has called you to be faithful. And there's this temptation to just run from the calling God has. Maybe it's a different calling in your life that you know that you, you are accomplishing this mission and you're, you're doing something that God wants, but it's difficult and it's hard and you're full of uncertainty and there's this temptation to flee. What we find in Jonah is that we can flee the callings of God, but we cannot flee God. And in the midst of Jonah's journey, God is with him, and we'll find that. There's always a ship headed for Tarshish, 
And we have a decision to respond to God in obedience or to run away. But here's kind of the last thing that I want to leave you with, which I think is just fascinating. We're never told why Jonah leaves in the story. In, in verse 3, when he runs away, gets as far away from God, we're just kind of assuming because, you know, Nineveh's terrifying. Like, they're chopping off the legs of their enemies, right? Like, my guess is if I'm Jonah, I don't want to go there. I, like, I'm preaching a sermon to, like, you know, people who, who love me. This is easy. Go preach a sermon to people that, that see me as an enemy and then tell them that what they're doing is something they need to repent from. I would be terrified. I would probably get in the boat and go to Tarshish as well. We assume that Jonah is responding with fear of going to Nineveh. But in this story, when he goes against what God wants, his heart is kind of revealed in chapter 4. And here's something that we'll talk about in this series as well. It, it says kind of like when the story is about to, to wrap up, and spoiler alert, it's, you know, it's only four chapters. So um, after, after Nineveh repents and, and experiences this mercy of God, Jonah is furious. He's furious that these evil people have this transformation moment where they come in repentance to God and God spares them. And it tells us in Jonah chapter 4 that Jonah kind of like leaves Nineveh and he's angry and he's mad at God. And he says this, and it kind of reveals Jonah's heart. And it says, this is why he actually fled. He says, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, 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 that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, God slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Kind of like spills the beans here. Cat's out of the back. Jonah says, here's actually why I ran, Lord, because I knew that you were going to be merciful on my enemies. And I knew that you are going to be kind, and I knew that you are going to be compassionate, and you were sending me there to tell this message that if they would repent and turn from their ways, you would have mercy on them. And Jonah basically says, I want no part in that. I don't want these Ninevites to experience your mercy. These Assyrians, who are such terrible people, don't deserve your mercy, God. Jonah has a heart problem. He knows all about God. He knows what God's up to in this world. And yet he, doesn't, he has this bitterness and this hatred towards the Ninevite that he doesn't want them to experience God's goodness and God's mercy. He has a heart problem. And if an 8th century Hebrew prophet has hatred in his heart towards people, that he doesn't want them to experience God's transformative mercy, my guess is that I also have some heart stuff that I have to deal with with people that are different than me that I see as enemies. And my guess is you probably do as well. It's possible to have all of the theological answers correct and still have a heart that is toxic and a life that is out of order where we miss the missional mercy of God, what he's doing in this world. And I think our world desperately needs mercy right now. When we start to understand the message of God, what Jesus has done for us, the mercy that was offered even to these terrible Ninevites, we're reminded of Romans chapter 5. And I'll end with this. In verse 6, it says, You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. This is the gospel message. Christ died for the ungodly, not for those that just deserve it. He died for those who are ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a person, a righteous person, though for a good person, some might possibly dare to die. 
but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have now received reconciliation. Do you want to know what God's heart is? God's heart is for enemies, the ungodly. He wants relationship with them. And while in the midst of their ungodliness, Christ was willing to die for them. And there's this way of Jesus that we're now a part of. People who don't deserve it experience the mercy of God. For Jonah, it makes him furious. For me, it would make me furious as well. But this is a story of a God with missional mercy that transforms the hearts of his enemies. This is the calling that we have as God's people, knowing that we at one point were enemies of God as well. So we live now with kind of this this missional mercy for our enemies. I'm excited to dive into this book over the next seven weeks. We have so many kind of fun series uh, planned or sermons planned. Uh, We'll be hearing from, uh, from Tyler, from some guest speakers as well. Um, but we have a digital devotional. We'd love for you to jump in as we kind of just go through these four chapters over the next seven weeks. Um, my hope is that our understanding of this old story, this old Sunday school story, would just deepen our hearts and our longing for God and what God is doing in this world through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this old story. It's powerful. We're reminded, Lord, of the brokenness of our world. We live in a world of chaos where evil is real. And we're reminded that you are a God of mercy. Sometimes we forget, Lord, that we're unworthy of it, and yet you love us so much you would die for us. Lord, I ask that we would be a people who would reflect that to others. Lord, that we would see your mercy as part of this mission as we live here. Lord, that you would reveal certain things in our heart where, like Jonah, we try to run from you. All of our excuses, Lord all of the, uh, the uncertainty and the fear that we place before your mission. And Lord, as we read through this story about how you are transforming those who are far from you, we ask that you would continue to transform us to be more like you. We see Jonah as this This prophet who knows your heart has all the theological answers and still makes mistakes. Reminded that we could do so as well. We see in Jonah's story this unprecedented mission. We know that you are working in ways 
right now in this world that we may not even understand, but we want to be in tune with the mission that you've called us to. That we would experience your saving grace in ways that we may not even get in the moment, but we know that you're working. Thank you for loving us even in the midst of us being your enemies, your sacrificial act on the cross. Lord, I just ask that you would uh, just let us experience your grace and mercy today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.